the fight for equality and the movement around Black Lives Matter continues to build momentum. Tom and I recently had the chance to speak with Nikki O'Neill, designer and founder of 800 Square Feet, and her brother and founder of IBPD Inc., Olu O'Neill, about their lived experience, the stripping of Black identities the past 400 years, and how we can all navigate the social climate with compassion, empathy, and an open mind moving forward. This truly is race relations and the global response. Olu, Nikki, cannot thank you both enough for taking the time to chat with us today. Tom and I have been looking forward to this all week, so it's very much appreciated. And on a topic that has been front and center for at least three weeks now, and for good reason. But before we get into all of it, both of you independently, I'm sure you have received countless of messages, emails, and phone calls the past few weeks. Well, I know I have. Yeah, a few calls on my end, a few discussions, you know, getting together, social distancing. Yeah, it's just interesting taking everyone's uh, take on the event. Well, what they feel they need to do in order to, to fix the problem, right? What has been interesting for me is just the diverse uh, response that I'm getting, uh, depending on where people are coming from in, on an individual level. So, for example, I've had white friends that have called and a lot of the time is spent in, you know, their guilt. That could be a little taxing, you know, considering we've kind of sat Black people, when I say we, we've sat in this place and this is our experience and lived experience for the entirety of our life. So for them to just kind of wake up to this reality and then you have to carry the burden of like comforting those tears. At times it can be a lot. And then other perspectives from other people of color and their experience and how it's affecting them. It's been a big array of different types of emotions. Yeah, I'm sure the feelings too have uh, kind of run the gamut. Now, this isn't a problem that's new to you. I'm sure it's a problem that's new to a lot of people who have reached out. But for you, when it comes to allyship and that support from the people around you and, I mean, the people in your country, do you want to be hearing at this point, I'm here for you, or how are you doing? Is that getting tired? What are you looking for now as as support from the community? You know what? It can get tiring. Like, at first, I was really unmoved by the protest going on all over the world because we've been here before. This has happened. People have protest and we don't get enough results. So it wasn't until my sister told me about, you know, some online movements where people were calling out businesses and individuals on racism and basically demanding change. So I thought it was interesting. I started really paying attention to what was going on online, hearing people's stories and seeing, you know, the outrage in people other than Black people, which was encouraging and um, seeing people posting stuff. So part of me is like, yes, this is positive, but how long is this going to go on for? Is this just Another trend people are are doing or people are following in order to seem relevant. And then a week or two, it's going to be gone. If we can continue this momentum until we actually see change, then that's the only point I'll be satisfied. I do want to say something. I know this is going to be tough to cut this down, I know, because it's a a lot of stuff that's going to touch both of us. But I think when it comes to allyship, for me, I think what I need people or... 
I think a lot of the Black community need people to understand is that I've heard a lot of people say this, but allyship is a verb, right? So that requires people to do something. Posting a statement of solidarity for brands without actually doing anything that is going to affect the Black community is absolutely nothing. It is just a signpost and it has everything to do with their bottom line and nothing to do with how the Black community will actually be helped. So for me, when it comes to allyship, you see a lot of people doing this performative action that for me has made me completely sick. And I think the brands, people need to be held accountable. Like this is people's lives, right? So people need to be held accountable. So when it comes to people asking, what can I do? Um, how are you? Those sort of things. That's great. Those gestures are great. And it's great to have those feelings of support. But more than that, you don't have to uh, broadcast the change. It, it happens when you go and you learn and you read books and you internalize what the issue is. Not when you proclaim, oh, I've done A, B, and C. Allyship is a lifelong work. Correct. We've been Black our entire lives. So it's a lifestyle. It's not just something that you do because all of a sudden it's this popular thing to do. I had said it before in one of my posts that it's like becoming a vegan. You're not a vegan for a day because it's the trendy thing to do. It's a, it's a commitment and it's something that you decide that you want for your lifestyle for whatever reason, right? So it's just like that. And you've got to make sacrifices. I'm not going to eat these things, you know, because I believe A, B, and C. And when you see what's going on today and you're like, okay, you know, I want to support this movement. You've got to give up things that you've got in your life so that others can feel the same thing and feel accepted and feel like they're getting those things as well. So I'd definitely love to sort of dig into some actionable items that anybody that's listening to this can apply in their own lives. Just before we get into that, although you mentioned a couple of moments ago that you wonder if this will be sustained change. Obviously, this has been a systemic issue that's gone on for way too long. I suppose there's probably, will this be different? Will this moment in time? be a little bit different. I'm thinking back to LeBron James in 2014, wearing an I Can't Breathe t-shirt after Eric Garner was murdered in New York City. And the thought that six years later, those same words, uh, just what happened is just unbelievable. And at the same time, there has been a global outcry this time, which perhaps we haven't seen in the same regard previously. From coast to coast across the United States and Canada and Germany, everywhere, all over the world, these things are happening. So Definitely want to touch on those actionable items momentarily, but maybe just first before we dig into that, from both of your perspectives, do you think this is different this time? I think the first week after all this happened, I did not go to social media. I did not go to any news outlets because it was too much to take. And I told myself that, you know, it'll be done in a week and we'll be fine. You know, we'll go back to everything being normal because I never thought there would be any change. Now, what's going on now is encouraging because people all over the world are bringing up, well, they're protesting in solidarity, but they're also bringing up the issues, the racial issues that they have in their countries, in their cities. So I do see this as a very different movement, but will this be the one that changes things? I'm still on the fence with it. Like I'm the person that his glass is always half full. And then after this whole incident, my cup is empty. Like I'm just tired, you know? There are people out there that are pushing for this. There is a younger generation that's pushing for this. 
because they believe in it. But when I am in my 30s, there are people in their 40s, 50s, 60s that have been here and keep thinking that maybe it's this one, maybe it's this one, maybe it's this one. And I feel like I am in that same boat, that maybe it's this one, maybe it's not. I don't know if this is it, if this change will happen, but there's going to be a lot of work from everyone that's going to need to be done in order for this to actually happen. And to be honest, it's hard to see it. When I look at the situation, I think there is an element of difference because we have uh, the first time a global pandemic, economic decline, and civil unrest that's happening. And all that combined with a lack of leadership in the United States that's supposed to be this world leader, all that has allowed this to explode to the degree that it has. Because if another president had been sitting in that house, this could never have happened. This would never have happened with Obama. Never. So for me, those things combined has allowed an opportunity for cracks to be seen and the situations of people to match or correlate to, uh, to a lot of the Black communities or disenfranchised people. So they're able to feel close to, to this. For example, um, when the pandemic hit and, and tons of people lost their job and felt disregarded, that feeling can translate. I think the fact that all these three things have happened has allowed people to see into a window that would normally be um, cloaked or covered. That has allowed a lot of things to happen and shift in the way that it has, and it allowed voices to be um, raised and also band together. So I do think that there is a difference in the sense that people now feel like they can stand beside something because there is so much imbalance in the world right now that people are fed up. A lot of the people that I think that are standing in and standing in solidarity with Black people, they have their own baggage that they're bringing with them. I think this movement is not just about Black Lives Matter anymore for a lot of people. When you brought up that it's not just Black lives, what's interesting is that this all started with police brutality, right? And people are protesting and we're seeing police brutalizing all sorts of people, white, Black, brown, just because of power. So everyone is upset with the police. Everyone's fighting against the police. So I feel that this part of this discussion will get addressed. I feel that there will be change with racism and police brutality because of it. But there's a bigger picture to all of this. And speaking of bigger picture, it's an incredibly complex issue to address and to solve because it touches on every aspect of life. This is about education. It's about housing. It is about access to so many different things. It is about really everything. Racism touches every sort of aspect of life. And so I think that we'd, we'd love to talk a little bit more about some of those systemic issues and some things that might be done at more of a governmental level momentarily. Actually, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but there are people out there, I would say to some degree, myself included, that almost feel you want to do something, you don't know what you can do, you don't know who to ask, you don't know where it's safe to have those conversations. It can be difficult to understand what you can do to contribute in some way to advance things in a positive way and to create a world that's more equitable and free for everybody and gives everybody an equal shot as it should be. For anybody that's listening to this right now that's maybe overwhelmed by the gravity of this issue and the fact that it has been so systemic for so long, 
do you have any advice for actionable items that they could take in their own lives that would be helpful? One thing that I do want to make clear, because I have seen a lot of people, uh, white people, people of color, step up and try in some way to be a part of the conversation or offer allyship. And sometimes they are met with anger, for example. They're met with anger, frustration. And I think it's important for white people that are looking to step into this conversation to understand that they will be met with anger. It's like this. This is such a messy situation. And there's so many different viewpoints and realities. It is very clear now that everybody has been living in different realities. So now that these things have now been unveiled, the people that have been going through the turmoil, just because you show up into the room does not mean that they have the capacity to hold the weight of the guilt for white people. So if you're coming to the table, you must come with humility and compassion, understanding the heaviness that is weighed on Black people at the moment. So I don't want the the anger or the heavy emotion to discourage people from continuing to show up. I'm just saying that because I see there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of argument and people that think that they're coming with allyship because they don't have a lot of knowledge, they're showing up in the way that is not necessarily helpful and they are met with retaliation or anger. I don't want that to scare them away. So I'm saying that to begin. But first of all, when it comes to showing up and how you can show up, knowledge is the number one thing that will help the situation. You must educate yourself. You must educate yourself on the situation, reading books, understanding how systemic racism works. Because if you don't have knowledge, you're coming from a place where you're, you are the center of attention. And now all of a sudden you step into the room where somebody else is the center of attention and you try to take a hold of that mic or take that mic away, it's never going to work. So if you step into the room, you must step into the room with knowledge, with humility, that's just on the personal work. That internalized work needs to be done. That introspective work, first and foremost, needs to be done. But then the practical things, like, for example, is finding areas in which you can support the Black community in different ways, ways that feel good to you or personal to you, whether that's education, whether that's healthcare, whether that's um, protesting. There's so many different types of people. And in order for this to change, everybody is going to have to play their part. You might not be a person that is a healer. You might not be a person that goes out there and screams and says, you know, Black Lives Matter. But wherever you can contribute, perhaps you have resources and you can allocate those resources to help. If you're a lawyer, perhaps you can help protesters that have been locked up or you can provide legal help to the Black community. Whatever your, your portion is, there's always ways that you can provide resources for the Black community. But I think it must start with knowledge because once you understand where the issue stems, then naturally, naturally you begin to think, okay, this is how I can fix it. If you just try to scratch the surface, you can never help in a genuine way. You must understand what the actual issue is and then come with the, that genuine call to action. Yeah, I totally agree with Nikki. Nikki pretty much said everything. The one thing I really do want to highlight is that when talking to a person of color or a Black person about these issues on how to help, when you are met with anger or you are met with discord in some sense, you know, step back and come back and ask again. Because sometimes that first instant is where you're going to get that eruption. You're going to get that person that's upset 
But the fact that you're going back, you're trying to continue that relationship, you're trying to help that person, just simple ask, how can I help? Is there anything I can do? You know, and if you feel that rejection the first time, when you go back the second time, they will know that you're truly in there to help them. Now, Nikki, you had mentioned everyone has been living in a different reality, but I'd like to know both of your perspectives and respective experiences, what your reality has been like, you know, on social media and in the news, we're hearing a lot about the systemic racism in America mainly, but yet we've seen this outrage around the world, like Tom had mentioned earlier. But I, someone who is a person of color, understand that racism is very apparent and uh, it exists in Canada, of course, uh, having experienced it myself as well. But you hear about microaggression. And I want to know, is there a difference between microaggression and racism? And if you've experienced any form of either or in your lifetime, which I'm sure you have. Um, microaggression is just a form of racism. It's like an underlying part of it. It's, the, it's like someone saying you're pretty for a black girl, as opposed to saying you're pretty. I've heard that tons of times. Or one thing that I always hear is you're so articulate as though, you know, someone that looks like me shouldn't be, you know, things like that. Oh, you're so well-spoken and smart. Wow. Like, why is that hard to believe? Or why is that a, a point that needs to be, you know, highlighted? So those little uh, tones that people think are comments are actually these backhanded ways, they're microaggressions. So they're not overt. And I'm sure the person who's saying them in, in no way thinks that they are racist or is trying to say a racist thing, but it comes back to this deep-rooted issue in Western society. And I say Western society, but I really mean in any colonized nation. There are things that we are taught that is so ingrained that to us now as adults is normal. Okay, yeah, sorry, I don't wanna get off topic, but you asked about microaggressions and racism. So yeah, there is a difference. My own experience when it comes to racism, there are tons of situations of you know being called a nigger. I grew up, I went to French immersion. I was the only black kid in my school. I say small things now because they seem small, but small things like um, I wasn't allowed to go slide down the hill at recess. It was a snowy day and some, some guy said to me, I couldn't slide down the hill because I was a black kid. And I just kicked him and I went down anyways, but things like that, you know, or for example, when I was working in a financial industry, having somebody pour their wine on me, look at me in my face and, and then pour their wine on me with this smirk. Those have been the more overt, but because I'm dressed a certain way, because I hold myself and carry myself a certain way, most times I don't tend to be met with that sort of racism. I tend to be met with the, the underlying ones. For example, having somebody follow me around a store. You know, different things like that. I think I'll have Olu speak on his issues because I know with Black men, their experience is very different from Black women. So for me, the very overt was probably in my younger years, being in the playground and being called like the N-word in grade two and trying to figure out what does that mean? Our parents actually made us sit through this movie called Roots. It has to be like the longest slave movie ever put together. To me, at that age, I thought this was American history. White masters called African Americans this name. I personally don't like to use the term, but when um, they use this name, so I said, okay, yes, I'm Black, but I'm not African American, nor am I a slave. So that didn't apply to me. 
you know, later on, I understood what the word meant, but I always tried my hardest to make sure that I'm not seen as a stereotype. I don't do the things that African-Americans do. And what was my reference? TV and movies. So I always, instead of listening to hip hop or rap, I would listen to like country or pop. Country's actually mainly my dad because we were raised on country, African music and Michael Jackson. But instead of basketball, I played road hockey. You know, it wasn't until I got a little bit older, moved into a more diverse area was when I was able to see that I've been missing out on a lot of stuff. But in my younger years, I saw the overt racism, you know, yelling those words, having to fight people because they called me those words. But when I got older, I was in Calgary at the time and I wanted to go back to school for mechanical engineering. So I need to find a a place to live. I didn't want to stay at home. I was looking at rentals, found a few listings and called them. And one woman picked up, you know, she had a very thick Chinese accent, but the conversation was very pleasant. We booked a time to see the, the space the very next day. So at the end of the conversation, she asks me, oh, what's your name? Olu. Now, Olu in Nigeria is a very common name. It's equivalent to Mike here, right? So she said, oh, you're Nigerian? I'm like, "Uh, yes, is that a problem? Says, oh, I don't rent to your kind. I'm like, what? She's like, you guys don't pay. I'm like, what? That's illegal. You can't do that. And she hangs up the phone on me, right? So that was, you know, in my face. But years later, I was looking for a commercial space for my business. And I found it very difficult to find a space, even just book a time to see it. Right. And then I thought about what happened to me when I was in school. I'm like, no, this is not the same thing. So what I did, my name is spelled O-L-U. I dropped the O and then resent emails to all the same postings I had. And every single one of them responded to me almost immediately. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe this. You know, I decided, you know, I'm going to go check out these spaces anyways. And, you know, me being optimistic, thinking, you know, once they see me, once they talk to me, they'll know that, you know, I'm not a hardened criminal or a thug. Any negative image of me would be destroyed once they saw me, but it didn't happen. None of them called me back. At that point, I, you know, I was like, I gave up. I'm like, let me get a realtor. And the realtor uh, helped me find a space. Actually, he helped me find a space. We were supposed to sign a lease. And then the owner said, oh, he wants to meet me. So I'm like, okay, you want to meet? That's fine. This is just a sign. And the realtor is like, yes, it's to sign the paperwork. You get there. And the owner asks me for a pitch. He's like, so what's your pitch? I'm like, pitch. Okay. I told him what my business was. And then he started questioning everything. You know, do you have a business plan? You don't have enough money, blah, 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 blah. I actually brought my business plan. I showed him, I explained to him, but he kept putting me down, putting my plan down. And then later on, the realtor realized what he was doing. He really didn't want me to be in the space. We left the space and he was very apologetic, but that one wasn't overt. It wasn't in my face, but you can see where he was going with the entire thing. So 
yeah, that's just a couple stories, but I can be here all day telling you <laughs> the stuff that I've been through. You know, hearing both of these stories, and thank you so much for sharing so candidly and vulnerably, but hearing these stories reminds me of the IGTV you did, Nikki, when you talked about the stripping of identity. And that stopped me in my tracks. But when you go through these experiences, a lot of the times, like you said, when you're younger, how do you reconcile with your community, your fellow students who don't look like you, and just life in general when you are being forced? to go through these experiences in your formative years. When you're a kid, you don't register them the same way you register them as an adult. When you're a kid, the world is still bright. You have an an outlook on things, you're innocent. So it's only when you continuously get beat down and beat down. And and, and also when you're a kid, you're hopeful. You say to yourself, okay, well, maybe they called me a nigger because I'm wearing sneakers. So you never wear sneakers again. Maybe they stopped me and said this to me because I'm wearing jeans, so you never wear jeans again. Or maybe these girls keep asking to touch my hair because it's strange, so you go put a weave in. When you're young, you're hopeful. You think if you can assimilate enough, if you can erase yourself enough, or you can be the other enough, you will be accepted. It's not until you're an adult that you realize there is nothing you will be able to do. There's no amount of words you'll be able to pad onto your vocabulary. There's no weave long enough or straight enough, that's going to change the way that they see you. And that's when you lose that piece of you, you lose that light, you know? So that stripping of identity, that's part of what I'm talking about. Um, I had spoken to you, Bridget, about like in all nations that have been colonized, they have that same uh, situation where you have in China, where, you know, lightning cream and bleaching creams is a billion dollar industry, or in India where they have the caste system where, you know, the darker you are, the the more disenfranchised you are, you know? So for me, and I'm sure Olu, just like Olu was talking about doing certain things like playing hockey instead of, you know, basketball and certain things that you would have preferred to have experienced, you then make your choices based on fear, based on what you do not want to be perceived as rather than who you are. Oh, I have to say, really appreciate you both sharing these stories. And it's also tough to hear for sure. I think change starts at the top in most scenarios, leadership, people that can rally public opinion, can get through two different people, can help reshape attitudes and mentality. It's interesting what's happening in the world right now. Obviously, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister in Canada, and then Donald Trump, the American president, have taken very different approaches on this. Justin Trudeau recently came out and said that systemic racism is a problem in Canada across kind of all different institutions. There have been some political scientists that initially condemned that, Sockwell Day being one, another one, uh, Rex Murphy being another. They were both absolutely roasted and they lost their jobs. And um, actually, even more recently, I'm not sure of her title within the RCMP, but there was a a press conference where sort of a key figure within the RCMP basically said, you know, Canada is a multicultural society where people come from all corners of the earth, we welcome everybody with open arms, we treat everybody the exact same. And so there's been a little bit of a sort of conversation taking place within Canada, where some people are saying, in certain pockets of the country, especially, you know, all of that that you're seeing, it's an American thing. That's something that that happens in America. That's not us. We are super multicultural. We are inclusive. We, we welcome everybody. That's not us. We're not quite like that. And yet, anybody that just listened to both of you for the last few minutes here can clearly see that that's not the case. 
to Canadian people that believe this is an American problem or this is a foreign problem or that we are a multicultural country and this isn't an issue here, what do you think those people need to know? Um, although the Black people in America face racism in an overt way with their bodies being beaten and, you know, it's, it's very in your face. The thing with that is that there's no question about whether it exists. You know, you see it, you know, it's there. Anybody who says, oh, I didn't know is kind of like, seriously, you know, are you blind? Although I would never want to experience to that degree. I think it's better because at least people see it. In Canada, it's very quiet. That's why people are like, oh, that's an American thing. So in Canada, it's a whisper. These are people that are friends, people that you eat in their homes. That for me is something that um, I just wanted to highlight on because in Canada, it's, it's not something that is in your face. So it's difficult to change. It's harder for the dial to move because in order for a dial to move, you must acknowledge that the dial exists. But nobody wants to acknowledge that it exists. So it continues. It's almost a different narrative, as I'm sure you've seen. Did you see that CBC clip during one of the protests shortly after George Floyd's passing, where they literally cut it right before police cars rammed into a very busy crowd? So they eliminated a really telling moment in that point in time during the protest. And CBC obviously got a lot of backlash for it. But this is essentially what we're being fed from our Canadian outlets. So no, it didn't happen in Terry, but they clipped it to show to Canadian people. So they didn't show the full degree. You know what? Let me say this. We've had the Women's March downtown. We've had plenty of protests that happened downtown, right? Have they ever boarded up The entirety of the street. No. Mm -hmm. But when we had a peaceful protest, stores were rallying to board up all the windows and cops were removing rocks. It was the most peaceful protest. They were singing. They were praying in the streets. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's, it's that, that idea. When we have our festivals, and I said this when I was talking on my, on my live, when we have our festivals, first of all, note the location of our festivals. Note the time that they end in comparison to other festivals. Note the amount of police that are present, not because we are violent people, but because that's the way we are seen. We are policed in a different way. We are restricted in a different way. We are watched in a different way. It's exhausting. I can only imagine because like I'd mentioned before, this isn't new to you. You know, the outrage that everyone is feeling or most people are feeling right now is because all of this information coming to light and rightfully so. I kind of want to switch gears a little bit because I'd say in the past week, I've been hearing a lot about the cancel culture coming back. And of course, cancel culture was a thing in 2017 when Me Too and Time's Up became a huge movement in and of itself. And we saw a lot of people, a lot of businesses and brands get called out for sexual misconduct, harassment, etc., And now we're seeing kind of a new wave of cancel culture come our way because brands, people, businesses are being called out, like you had mentioned earlier, for not stepping up, for not taking the right stance, for not supporting equality and Black people around the world. Do you think that this is something that is appropriate, especially in a time like this, or has it become such a gray area and or it will become a gray area that maybe some people or brands might get that negative spotlight that they might not necessarily deserve. 
I think that the cancel culture is our power. In history, people with the most money, people on government, they have the power. We have the power because we have numbers. So if someone is acting out, it needs to be addressed. And we're not going to wait for lawmakers to address it. This is the only way we can act together to make sure that they pay for what they did. Now, there may be some people that have done something and there isn't evidence to prove what they've done. But if we see what they've done in the past, what they're doing in the present, and we have the power to determine their future, we are going to do it. And I support cancel culture. I'd like to be like all rosy and say, you know, we should give people second chances. But you have to understand 400 years, you know, 400 years of waiting for other people, trying to allow people to see uh, what we're going through. At some point, there has to be action. For example, the Amy Cooper situation. If she didn't lose her job, if she didn't lose her dog, if all these things and her life was destroyed, it wouldn't have even hit the news. So this cancel culture in itself, it creates examples of people so that other people can wake up and see, oh, wait, hold on. Let me think twice before I do this. It's a good and bad thing. Everything is a good and bad thing. There's a yin and yang for everything because you can have somebody who might be able to see that situation and think twice, or it could scatter the roaches so they go deeper within the fold. So they're not as obvious to, to see. Or you could create an enemy. At the end of the day, you never know which way it's going to turn. But in this particular moment, where people are vocalizing that they didn't know, that they're vocalizing that they didn't realize that this was a reality, cancel culture is powerful because it, it wakes people up. It holds them accountable. That you cannot do this because this is what could happen to you. It's the same thing as when you have a business, you tell me that in a business, in a, a store, a brand, whoever, you're telling me in that business, in America, they don't know that they have some sort of race issue. Take anthropology, for example, that has a code word. When a Black person enters their store, they call them Nicks. Someone will say, hey, on the mic, follow that Nick or whatever. So they knew that they had a, an issue. They knew they had an issue, systemic, because this is something that happens in the US and in Canada. And you're telling me, that them putting up a black square or people canceling them out because they had this in their in their business is wrong. Hit them where it hurts, their bottom, their pockets. So yes, I agree with cancel culture. I'm, I mean, I, I understand that there should be room for leniency, but at this particular moment, this is not the time for it. This is not the time for leniency. No, and we're seeing call outs coming fast and hard. Like America's largest corporations who loot black communities are being called out right, left and center. And I'm talking about McDonald's, Victoria's Secret, Microsoft, the biggest corporations that have been around for decades and have run the world essentially are now being called out for what they do behind the scenes. And that's nothing to take light of. No, it's not. And I, and I think that it's in that shame and it sucks. It really sucks because for so long we came with love. And although people didn't see it as love, we came with love. Colin Kaepernick kneeling down at uh, the football games, that was coming with love. So for so long we came with love. So all of a sudden we come with this fierceness and it gets attention. It's unfortunate that shame needs to be the catalyst at this moment for change, but we're going to take what we're going to get. You know, like if, if it's shame that we need, then sure. 
at, at a later date, we can come with love. And for people who want to come and stand beside us, we, we hold on to them and we move forward how we need to, however messy it is. But at this moment, in this mess, shame seems to be a really big catalyst. So I actually want to ask one follow-up question just in relation cancel culture. And this sort of comes, I suppose, through the lens of words and actions and sometimes both. So historically, now we are, as we're all just been talking about over the last number of minutes here, there's a variety of different people, corporations, organizations, government bodies that are being exposed and the seedy underbelly is being revealed so that you can see the rot that existed and exists in many of these different systems and companies and places. And maybe when people see that, that will be some type of catalyst for positive change, you would hope. This is the hope. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you would have some people that would be well-intentioned. And perhaps, Nikki, you mentioned earlier how deep this runs, 400 years, there's certain, I don't know, just like conversational cues and things that just exist that so many people probably wouldn't pay attention to. And you guys have spoken earlier about the need for education and that if you truly dig into the literature and understand history and understand what has happened, then this provides sort of a point of reference or a context to properly understand where we're at and where change could take place. Just back to my original point on the topic of cancel culture, one area that I think about quite a bit as is this good or bad is that I think we could all agree that obviously listening needs to be first and foremost. And once people listen and better understand and educate themselves, naturally people have questions. If you're dealing with, with anybody that's learning something, they have questions. You want to know how something works, why it works, what that experience was, how that happened. People are generally curious to understand the details once they start learning something. And yet we're at a time as well where every word you say is critical and there are conversational landmines galore. And if you don't frame your question the right way, or if you don't approach with the right amount of humility, or if you are slightly misled, you can be absolutely roasted for that. And yet these conversations will need to take place for things to change and for things to elevate. So how do we balance people that want to ask questions or learn or try to make a positive difference but maybe this cancel culture has them scared to even ask the right questions. Posting them on social media is not the first place to ask these questions. You go to a person of color who is your friend and you talk to them about this stuff. You work it out with them because they will tell you what you shouldn't say and how it's going to appear, what people are going to feel when you say A, B, and C. So if you have something to voice, you have a question, you have an opinion, and you're truly for the cause and helping and contributing, have these discussions with people that you know first. Because yeah, it, you're right. It is messy because it, as soon as you go into social media and you post something, there are 10 people that will see that 10 different ways. I think that's very important that you have those conversations in person before posting anything online. I agree. I think there's a few things to start. And I, and I think this might be a hurtful comment to say, but I think white people to start need to realize that this issue of white supremacy, they need to see it as a white issue and not uh, an issue that they should empathize with black people on because it's something that's stemming there. And from that point, they can move forward. And I know that sounds difficult for people to swallow, but they have to realize that the stem is from them. 
Now, when we're talking about having these conversations, the other thing that they need to completely and wholeheartedly accept is the messiness of this. It will be uncomfortable. It will be messy. So you have to step into it knowing that that's what it's going to be, knowing that it's going to be hard to say and you're going to say the wrong thing. But I think the way you even ask this question, Tom, if you went to somebody and said, you know, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing, but I would really like to talk about this. That immediately, that vulnerability immediately disarms. It immediately opens somebody else to have this conversation. Say, look, I guarantee that in this conversation, I'll probably say the wrong thing, but I just want to learn. That is the right starting point. But knowing that you're going to say the wrong thing, being okay with saying the wrong thing and going to a safe space that allows you to do that. There's no other situation. Anytime you start talking about something that's personal to you, you go to your friend, you go to your mom, you go to people that know you, you safe spaces. So that is where people need to start. Where are these safe spaces? And I think what has happened is because white people think that this is a black issue, they come to black people thinking that that's where they need to start. No, no, no. Ask about what this idea of whiteness is. Talk about that in your family. What is this whiteness, this idea of whiteness? What does that mean? How did that even come about? Because race is not something that started from the beginning of time. You know, it's these questions that you need to ask. But until you understand that this is not a Black issue, we are just the ones that are feeling it. You know, listening to the two of you speak so candidly and having had side conversations with you, Nikki, about this, I know how passionate you are to get the word out there and um, to inspire action from every one of us. Just wondering, of course, this is all a lot. You're going through a lot of feelings, a lot of thoughts. It's a heavy time. How are you taking care of yourselves right now? Self-care is important. So what are you doing right now to kind of stay grounded? The last couple of weeks have been really tough. Trying to find comfort in friends is normally where you go. But when you're social distancing, it's you know not really the easiest thing to do. Luckily, I was able to do that last weekend in a large backyard, talk to some friends. That was really good. Just seeing them and talking to them about how I feel and them doing the same thing was a good thing. Talking to family, making sure everyone else is okay. You know, I'm the eldest in our family, so kind of comes natural to me to always worry about everybody else. But it's comforting to know that everyone's doing well. Yeah, throughout this in, entire thing. And you know what? A lot of running and walking actually helps with like anxiety and just my energy being through the roof and not knowing what to do with it. I've been doing close to 20,000 steps every day. So I'm just trying to stay active and in communication. Taking care of myself, I haven't been doing the best job of that because a lot of things are triggering. Like when everything started popping off, seeing somebody posting avocado toast was triggering, <laughs> you know? So for me, it's like taking time to step away from social media, which has been tough because that's where I get um, some of my information and that's how I stay connected in, in more of a real-time way. So stepping away when I can, forcing myself to, talking to mentors and people that I love and trust so that they can, you know, ground me. But then also I let myself sit in whatever feeling I am having. So I don't always try to speed up the feeling of unrest. I, I allow that to kind of take a hold and I sit with it. And then when it wants to pass, then I let it pass. 
sometimes meditation, but to be honest, like my brother, a lot of times I'm in the air as opposed to feeling grounded. And when I let those emotions pass, then I, then I might meditate to feel grounded. And also listening to a lot of Angela Davis, James Baldwin, those sort of things. Music is big for me. Instrumental. I want to talk about that a little bit further. So the great sort of hypocrisy, at least one of them, is that if you look at popular culture today, what music is popular? You're looking at hip hop, you're looking at rap, you're looking at R&B, you're looking at jazz infused music, all music that is completely influenced by black culture. If you're looking at the most popular athletes and entertainers, such a massive proportion of the people that we follow and look up to and admire and have posters on our wall, our black athletes, our, our singers, our actors, and that so much. And so black culture is a massive driver of popular culture all around the world, globally. It is reshaping culture in general, fashion, food, music, entertainment. And yet at the exact same time, this deep-rooted racism exists, which you would think that with that culture driving so much influence, it would be revered and admired and looked up to. And yet there's this weird sort of hypocrisy that exists. How do you think those two things can exist at the exact same time? It's very strange that it happened like that. You know, like we give so much, like we're entertaining to people. They love our music. They love seeing us on the screen. But does it matter if we live or die? Do you get affected? I don't know why it's like that. I think it's because of the history of American slavery. I think the reason it's like that is because Black culture is seen as a commodity. It's the same reason why Africa is destitute and poor. Everything there is a commodity to be siphoned off and to be put somewhere else, not to invest in the people that are there. Africa is rich with resources, but it's one of the poorest places on earth. Why? Why is somewhere that is so rich in resource so poor? It's the same reason why Black culture is so celebrated, but people are still hated. It's a commodity for other people to gain. The people that are putting the lining their pockets with the money from the celebrated culture are not Black people. Perhaps one or two, maybe the, small. you know, a small percentage of them, if they're an athlete or if they're Beyonce in this, we are a commodity. Our bodies are a commodity. You know how many times black women are made fun of, but for the fullness of their lips, fullness of their body, body you know, and as long as another person that doesn't have the same skin as me can, you know, pump their lip or pump their ass. Sorry, I don't know if I can say that. Then it's celebrated. We are commodities to people. That's why you can have these situations where we are celebrated and our dances can go viral and all these sort of things, like we're some sort of clown. When somebody's neck is being leaned on with a knee and you can see his life is, uh, is being taken away, the first thing someone's going to think is, what did he do? Now, I'm sorry if I sound off track by saying this, but what really confuses me and sticking in line with this topic is that We've seen so many films and so many artists celebrated in the Black community, like 12 Years a Slave, Black Klansman, Django. You hear music from decades ago from Sam Cooke. You hear Somewhere in America by Jay-Z. You hear Nas. All these popular songs, artists, movies that have won a ton of awards speak very clearly about the history of slavery or the struggles that Black men and women go through. 
Yet people who have been celebrating this artistry over the years are surprised to actually learn about it now when they've been following these artists and these filmmakers for so long. That's what confuses me is that the truth has been right in front of you. One thing that is important in all these discussions as to how we got here, what's important is that a large percentage of how we are shaped is the media. So when you watch or when you look to what is visible, you know, if you have a group of people, your group of friends, if you don't have many Black people in there, then you don't have a lens into what the Black uh, life looks like, right? So what people generally see as to what Black life looks like is what they see on TV. Now, what has bothered me for quite some time is the fact that you rarely see movies about Black people that are just about stories, not about slavery, not about the ghetto, not about gangsters, just Black life, love stories, nothing to do with racism, nothing to do with slavery. You know, you rarely see Black stories being told just from the perspective of humanity. And I think that's a huge problem. That's why when somebody comes to a Black person or is in a room with a Black person, they clench their purse because they're afraid because all they know is that they're gangsters, they're whatever you see on TV. You know, there's no regular life stories. We don't have a notebook for Black people that is just a story where anybody can, can connect on a human level. Not that you're watching somebody outside of yourself or whatever. Just a story, just a humanistic story that happens to have Black people in it, just showing life. It's only now Jordan Peele is, is Jordan making an Peele, effort to do exactly. that stuff. And that's why I love Jordan. Even though I don't really like his movies, I will watch Jordan Peele's movies because he shows horror films with Black people. And it's not it has nothing to do with race. It's just literally a film that happens to have Black people in it. But it's not about like any sort of demoralizing um, statement towards Black people. Yeah, and I think, would you say Issa Rae is probably doing a good job at that as well? Issa Rae does it. She does a good job to a certain degree. She does have some things in there that still touch on the Black racialized experience. But I do think that she does allow some um, elements of just life, regardless. Anybody can relate to it, irrespective of whether they're Black or white or whatever. So I do think there's a little bit of that. But I think the large portion of of television and movies and and content that you can consume about Black people is about the negative connotations that is not necessarily what our lived experience is. I don't watch a lot of these movies because I can't relate to them. So would you say that whose responsibility is that moving forward, especially in the entertainment industry? Is it Black artists, Black filmmakers, Black writers to step up and humanize Black men and women in a different way? Or is it everyone collectively who needs to step up and take on that responsibility? It's definitely everyone because in the past, there have been Black artists that have wanted to put out content like this, but because they never got the support by studios, they never got uh, the funding by studios. It's only now that, what's his name? Tyler Perry. He's the first black studio owner. Yeah. He's the first one. So he is trying to push all these things. I'm not a big Tyler Perry fan, but I support his movement. I support what he does, but it's the responsibility of everyone. It is the responsibility of everyone. And I think in that, I just keep thinking about it's a systemic issue. So people support and produce content that they think people want to see. So when you come to them and say, hey, I have this story about, you know, 
two people falling in love and whatever and outline it and they're like no it doesn't really what about you add this and you know so it's everybody's responsibility to create these sort of stories for people to be consumed one thing i do want to add is that these stories these movies they're considered black movies right they're very interesting especially to me because i see these things and i see this you know gangster movie and this lifestyle and what's going on in it and I'm like, wow, this is interesting. And I'll watch that with my friends of many different races. And then they will ask me questions about it as if I've lived that. I'm watching it with you. I've never been in that lifestyle. That's not my story. This is just a movie. You know what I mean? And people need to realize that you can't assume that this is the life of every Black person, whether it's a basketball movie, a gangster movie, or anything else with a Black person, you need to realize that these are all individuals. You know, these are different stories. So Nikki, I'm so happy that you brought that up. That literally was my next question, which was just going to be representation of Black culture in Hollywood, in mainstream media, in music. There's, again, this weird dichotomy that takes place where who's the first billion dollar athlete, Michael Jordan, who is second, Tiger Woods, who's the first billion dollar musician, Dr. Dre, who's nipping at his heels, Puff Daddy. It's like the success amongst black culture is there, but it's recognized in a different kind of way and it's portrayed in a different kind of way. And I 100% agree if I'm thinking even just for myself growing up, what were the movies that represented black culture that I would have seen? It would have been obviously something like Boys in the Hood, which was a tremendous movie but obviously a very specific story being told. If it was more of the comedic variety, it might've been like, don't be a menace to South Central while drinking juice in the hood, which was also a very entertaining movie, but again, a very narrow view of the culture. And that's just up and down. You start thinking about it and you're both absolutely right when it comes to that. Anyways, this sort of makes me want to just circle back again to Olu, something that you had mentioned earlier. I had been talking about sort of the power of words and cancel culture and how to have these conversations. And one of the things that you had mentioned was that it's good to go speak to a black friend or acquaintance or coworker or somebody in your life that can speak from firsthand experience. And so something I just want to bring up. So my dad was from a family of 15 Ukrainian, his parents are Ukrainian immigrants that moved to Northern Ontario to work in the mines. Uh, He grew up in Sudbury. My mom grew up in Sudbury. Sudbury is quite a ways North. And once you get up into Northern Ontario, it is predominantly white. So when I was growing up, I was around white people a lot just because that was sort of the environment. My parents ended up moving down south. They moved to Oakville. I was in Oakville. I just want to tell a little story here just because it'll follow a question, but just to provide some context. So I was really into soccer in my youth. I really loved playing soccer. I played rep soccer in Oakville. My coach actually left the Oakville soccer club to go and coach in North Mississauga. And I was probably maybe 12 years old, 13 years old, something like that. The Oakville Soccer Club, there were kids of Irish, English, Scottish, German, some Portuguese, Italian descent, all like white Anglo-Saxon European type kids. And then I remember the very first practice I went to in North Mississauga, I was actually the only white kid on the team. And it was the first time in my life, again, I was like 12, 13 years old, where I had the experience that I've thought of so many times There's so many times where I've been in a classroom or I've been standing in a line or I've been at a seminar and there's only one black person in the room. And I always think back to that moment. I remember walking to the field and I was like, wow, this is such a departure from 
the experience that I was just having. I wasn't scared or nervous or anything. It was just, this is such a departure from what my experience had been before. Um, I didn't do a lot of talking in the the opening few weeks because I was just trying to better understand my place and how to interact. And what's basically what happened over time is that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of better understanding culture. I made tons of friendships with people from all different backgrounds. One guy from the Ivory Coast, one guy direct from India. There were people from all over the world and we all became really, really great friends. That people talk about white privilege. There's also different forms of privilege experiential privilege that for me was a massive privilege having that experience and spending that time and making those friendships and bonds reshaped or shaped or just gave me a different worldview and who knows how i would think things through today if it wasn't for those experiences i think a big part of all this is kind of getting together and exposure and understanding and listening and talking and rapport and building fences and all of that for people that don't have a black friend or don't have somebody in the workplace, what would you say that they can do to create those bridges and ultimately sort of enrich themselves by really opening up to different cultures? Where you can start is, I mean, people are online everywhere, you know? You start with diversifying your feed. And I think people have kind of heard that a little over this last couple of weeks, you know, start following people that don't look like you. And I'm not just talking about black people because you said it, Tom, I mean, there's an entire world of people. The people you met, there was someone from Ivy Coast. There was somebody from India. There is an entire world out there of people with different experiences. And once you start diversifying, following different people that have that, you almost get to be like a fly on the wall to expose yourself, indoctrinate yourself to a different culture, uh, to watch, to learn, to listen, to figure out the things you like, um, to learn vocabulary, terminology, so that when you speak, you feel like you can speak to something specifically go somewhere that serves different types of food, taste the food, you know, like it's almost like going on vacation in your own damn city or online. Like look at your book list, go to your, your, where your bookshelf is and look if there's any books by anybody that doesn't look like you go grab a couple books of people that have nothing to do with the demoralization of these people, just books written by authors that just want to talk about certain things and read and see different perspectives. I think you start there. And once you start changing that energy, you'll find that it'll become easier to talk to people of color, uh, of black people from a human perspective, not because they are black, but because it's a human perspective, because you like the same things, because you've allowed yourself to expose yourself to different things. Perhaps you, you know, go play golf and you, and you see a black guy there and you just want to talk to him about golf, whatever. I mean, like, I think as you start exposing yourself to different types of culture, it allows you the ease of being able to feel more comfortable to approach people, to not feel like you're an another. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're all trying to get to, where we don't feel like we're another. We, we just feel like we're human. We're seen and we're heard and realizing that you are not the center of attention. The world has allowed you to be the center of attention for so long in magazines, in television, in education, in healthcare, in every aspect of our lives. So once you take yourself out of that position, allow somebody else to be the center for a moment. Play with that for a little and then go out and it'll be much easier to interact, much easier to make friends in those communities. I love that. And while we're on the topic of resources, is there anything that you've been suggesting to your friends that have been really valuable or any films, any pieces of information that uh, that some of our listeners can probably use 
to their advantage right now as they're continuing their journey and learning. Netflix is like a huge, I mean, if anybody has not seen 13th, that really puts a light on a lot of the systemic racism in the United States and also can be extrapolated to Canada in some regards. The 13th, when they see us, just mercy, the skin we're in is uh, CBC. And Black Lives Matter activist movies, they have a lot of activist movies that you can go that kind of gives you a lot of information. Read books like White Fragility. So you want to talk about race, um, algorithms of oppression, blood in the eye, if they come in the morning. That's an Angela Davis book. And then also uh, when I was talking about uh, allyship and I had missed a couple of things. So that's just in terms of education. And then also just go on YouTube and like look up speeches by Malcolm X and James Baldwin and Angela Davis and um, Nina Simone. You know, there's a lot of people that just in listening to them talk, you kind of get more of a sense and that will lead you on another path. But in terms of allyship, other things that you can do besides just helping is petitions. There are tons of petitions out there that speaking uh, by signing them, that takes a little bit of time, you know? Again, I was talking about diversifying your feed, getting you know eyes on different types of people, and then also showing up. Go to a rally. If you want to talk about becoming friends with people that don't look like you, go to a protest. And then also another form of allyship that costs absolutely nothing is having conversations with people that look like you. There's a, a certain sort of comfort that you can have with those sort of conversations. And those sort of conversations are absolutely necessary in, in this actually being a real change. And I'm not just talking about white people having conversation. I'm talking about Asians. I'm talking about Indians. Because in every single culture, there is this indoctrination of whiteness that needs to be discussed. It's like we don't need this anymore. You don't need this idea of whiteness and blackness and all these different things. I think if we can come together and start having these uncomfortable discussions with the people that we are closest to and really trying to look at what this was about, why was this started? What does this mean? How have we benefited from this? I think that's where we can start. And I think Olu wants to say something. Uh, you, you mentioned a lot of good books. The only thing I did want to mention is Jane Elliott. Just go on YouTube, put in her name. You can see the experiments that she's been doing for, I believe now she's like 87 years old, but she is like a firecracker. She's an elderly white woman who did an experiment in white schools, separating the kids and just watching their reactions, watching what they do, watching how they change in order to teach them a lesson on racism. So just search Jane Elliott. There's tons of interviews with her on there talking about her experiment. There's also a documentary called The Whiteness Project. I'm going to probably look that up as well. So yeah, I mean, literally, I think you start somewhere and it leads you somewhere else. So those are probably a few crumbs that, you know, they have good places to start that lead other places. I will say that this is the first time any kind of algorithm has worked in my favor because you're right. Once you start somewhere, all those cookie trails, they really help you out in kind of targeting the right and similar kind of content to follow. I think once you start researching and looking into books and information that is beyond just racism, you start asking your own questions. That's when you start thinking, because there's one thing to talk about race, but then there's another thing to talk about um, just people's experience, just life. This has been one of my favorite podcasts that we've actually ever done. This is probably the most complicated topic that we've ever sort of delved into. And 
it is live and ever-changing and there's a lot happening right now and we've talked about so many different things here although we actually haven't at all gotten into reform and uh, change and what the future might look like i'm wondering would you two be willing to come back and do a part two on this sometime in the, the near future where we could talk about that a little bit further because i feel like we'd be a little bit remiss if we didn't talk about what change might look like and and how that that could work would you to be open to that yeah sure. absolutely sure cool okay we're going to schedule that in but for now we have taken a lot of your time and you have given us a lot of energy and thought-provoking answers and ideas and strategies and questions to ask and resources to consume and hope everybody that's listening to this has enjoyed it as much as we have enjoyed participating in it. I want to thank you both so much for your honesty, your integrity, for sharing all of the different stories that you shared, which really, I think, give everybody a much more clear picture of what this experience has been for many people that now hopefully we're going to start to see some of the change that is necessary in this world but thank you so much for for your time today thanks for having us it's been a pleasure thank you so much